Uh, why don't you guys uh, grab your Bibles if you've got one today. Uh, if you're joining us at home and tuning in online, uh, why don't you grab your Bibles and, and grab it in front of you today. Uh, otherwise, the words will appear on me behind. We've got a long reading today, okay? Most of the time we've been trying to take small portions of Acts as we've been making our way through. But we're going to read um, the events in full uh, of Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 41 this morning. So we're going to read the lot of it. So why don't you grab your Bibles if you've got it or read along with me as the words appear behind me. This is Acts 2, verse Verses 1 to 41, and this is God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, They were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, 
He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. You'll know that um, we've been in a series walking through the book of Acts so far. Um, We've kind of worked through lots of the early stages of what's been going on in Jerusalem. We kind of skipped past Pentecost so that we could come back to it today, okay? So actually, maybe in some ways, the narrative and where we're at is a bit further on from here. Um, But we're jumping back into Pentecost today to kind of unpack and unravel what that might mean for us. As many of you will know if you've been around our church uh, for a little while, I'm generally not very good at DIY, okay? I think I've probably told you this. It's just not my gift. I recognize that I'm in a building mostly full of millennials, so I'm telling you that today because I feel like, you know, I'm in safe company, right? You're all pretty terrible at it too, I'm assuming, right? DIY means you call someone, okay? It doesn't mean that you start. You never start or you're in big trouble, right? We're wick at it, okay? I mean, my dad's generation, boomers, as they're known, really good at DIY, not so good at talking about their feelings, okay? Millennials, right? We're millennials, terrible at DIY, still not very good at talking about our feelings. We probably talk about our feelings too much, right? That's the deal. Anyway, I'm not great at DIY, but ladies and gentlemen, right? I have an announcement for you this morning. About a week ago, a toilet in our house broke, and I took it apart and repaired it, and it's working, right? I actually did it, right? Major win for me, who's not good at DIY. It's the second humble brag of today. And I'm letting you know that today because most of my attempts at DIY are normally exercises in avoiding disaster, right? I rarely fix anything. It's normally worse when I'm finished. Uh, I'm just not very good at it. And a year or so uh, ago, before we moved out of our house, I was kind of going around the house fixing odd jobs, right? Kind of making the house ready to move out. And one of them was a light that was in our bathroom. So I was trying to fix this light. And my dad had given me one of those like tester screwdrivers, you know, the little one you put your thumb on the end and it tells you if there's electricity in it, right? So he'd given me this, you know, I don't know if it was some sort of like passing on the baton type gift or something. I don't know. Anyway, he gives me the screwdriver. So I go and I turn the power off and I go to the light and I'm like, you know, testing all the things, making sure as I'm going, right? It's definitely, I figure it's definitely off, right? So at this point, I start to take it apart, right? And it was at that moment that I just get, bang, get absolutely nailed by a massive electric shock. Now, I don't, any of you that have ever been electric, obviously I'm still here, right? I wasn't dead and I've been risen. I did 
survive my electric shock, okay? Um, if you've ever been hit before, it's like, it's like getting hit with a baseball bat. Like, it really hurts, and it really surprises you, because there's, like, no warning. You just touch it, and bang, and you kind of feel a bit sick, right? It's that, like, oh, what's just happened to me? The power was still on. Turns out the screwdriver dad gave me was actually broken, and the light didn't work. <laughs> What's that like? He who knows how to give good gifts to his children, right? Like one of those things, right? Where to give your son a broken electric testing screwdriver, right? Anyway, it didn't work. The power was on. And here's the thing. When the power's on, you notice. When the power's still on, you notice. It doesn't matter what the screwdriver says. It doesn't matter if you think you've got it all turned off at the fuse board. When the power's on, believe me, you notice. And we drop in on Acts 2 today for the day of Pentecost. And as, as we read it, what we're really reading is the account of the moment that the power turned on. And just like my experience with the light in my bathroom, you notice when the power turns on. That last verse, verse 41, 3,000 are added to their number that day. In a day, in a moment, the number swells from 120 or thereabouts to 3,120. In many ways, this is the epicenter of the whole narrative in the book of Acts, right? This is the moment. It's from here that all that we read about that is to come, right? All of the movement, the dynamism, the infectious spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome and outwards to the ends of the earth. It all spreads from this moment when the power turns on. And the thing is, Jesus said it would, didn't he? He said it would. Those chapters in the book of John, verse, chapters 14 to 16, Jesus speaks at length about how he's going away now and he's going to send the Spirit and some of the things that the Spirit is going to do after he goes, right? And then right at the start of the book of Acts, we read this. As Jesus is ascending, he says this, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So that's where they are. They're in Jerusalem. We're not sure entirely where because the Bible doesn't actually tell us. We think they're probably still in that upper room. But they were all together waiting as they were told to do. And then he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates. The Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' last words. And now, here's the power that he promised. When we approach festivals or seasons in the life of the church, it's sometimes hard to feel or experience perhaps what we think we should, isn't it? Maybe particularly about Pentecost. I've always felt this in my life as a follower of Jesus. How to, how to celebrate, how to experience what those disciples experienced on that day. On one hand, Pentecost is a one-off event, isn't it? Like, it happened. It could only happen once in many ways. It's a historical thing. It happened then. The gift of the Holy Spirit to the church, the rapid spread, the transforming power, traveling to the nations from the epicenter. In the first 15 chapters of Acts alone, there'll be 40 references to the Holy Spirit, that power. It happened, right? But it still resonates today as the reality of living in a world now where we have received and we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the day where we don't just remember it like it's an event in history. It's not an anniversary. It's an encounter. 
We're not here today around some sort of anniversary. We're here for an encounter. As John Stott wrote of this day, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without spirit is dead. This is it. This is the moment the power turns on. This is the breath in the church. This is the power that made the church alive, and we want that same power today, don't we? That's what we've been praying for for the last 24 hours. We want the same power, the power to be witnesses, the power to belong, the power to be inhabited by all the life of God, the power to, be, to know that our sins and our past are dealt with and we belong to him. We want that today, don't we? I hope we do anyway, or maybe you're in the wrong place. That's what we should want, shouldn't we? And so today, as we think about what happened on that day of Pentecost and try to encounter it again today, I want us to see two things about that power. Firstly, that it's the power that propels us. And secondly, that it's the power that proclaims. It's the power that propels and the power that proclaims. The first is that it propels. These are these first kind of 12 verses. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's what we've said. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. See, when you're looking at Acts 2, you're really, it's quite easy in some ways to look at it as the division, right? You can kind of divide it up into what's happening here, right? First, there is the account of what happened. That's what we're reading in those first kind of 12 verses or so. And then we read Peter's explanation of what it means. So this part is the account of what happened. And we're witnessing what happens when two worlds collide, right? This is what happens when two words, two worlds collide. And the thing is that just about everybody in the room will know what it's like to have two worlds collide in your life, right? Like when you're in a relationship with someone and you've kind of got your life with them and you've got your own lingo and kind of the things that you're into and all of that sort of stuff. And then that collides with family, right? Suddenly you bring them to dinner that first time and you realize for the first time just how weird one of those worlds is or the other one, right? Like with my family, one of the things very often whenever people came to my house, whether that was friends or, or it was a girlfriend or whatever, was like they, the first thing they always asked was, Dave, why do you always have bald melon before dinner, right? I don't mean bald like no hair. I mean with like a melon baller, right? We sound really like upper class. We're definitely not. I don't know why there was always bald melon in our house, right? But people would come and be like, like, that's weird. Nobody has bald melon before every meal, but in our house, we did, right? Two worlds that collide. And it could be the same for you when your uni mates meet your kind of home mates, or when your work life collides with your home life, or that there's the classic you at church and the you everywhere else, right? Two worlds collide. And what we're reading is the account of what happened when the life of heaven collides with earth. And by Luke's account, it sounds like it's here to stay. The Spirit's coming at Pentecost kind of had three features, right? It's pretty obvious as you read those verses. Three observable effects, a sound like a rushing wind, a sight of tongues of fire and speech in other languages, right? A sound, a sight, and speech, right? Those are the three things that, that are kind of really well known about what happened on that day. Now, wind and fire, right? They would have been pretty familiar uh, to the onlookers as in some ways they hark back to the Exodus and those images of pillars of fire and, and 
and what led the Israelites at that time, right? But the interesting thing about them all is the sense that everything wasn't quite as it seemed. After all, it wasn't wind, actually. It was what sounded like wind. It wasn't fire. It was what looked like fire. It was other languages. All of these manifestations had an otherness about them. Here's the thing. This wasn't just a sensory experience. It was a significant experience. And so the crowd gathered on that day. They wanted to understand something other was happening. What on earth is going on here? Wind and fire, they're uncontrollable, powerful things, aren't they? But here's the incredible thing about those three manifestations, right? When we read it very often, the inclination is to jump to how incredible the wind or the fire sound. But it turns out that perhaps the most significant of the three that day was language. Perhaps language was the most powerful and significant of them all. The context is that the Pentecost was called Pentecost before we called it Pentecost, right? Very often we think when we come to things like this that like we've put the name on that as the day of Pentecost. It was a festival in the life of the Jewish people, right? Uh, it was often called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And it happened about seven weeks after the Passover. In fact, Pentecost means 50th, right? So it's 50 days after the Passover. And Jews gathered to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest grain. Historically, it was one of the more crowded festivals in Jerusalem. Many historians think that during the feast, the population of the city would have risen from about 150,000 to 1 million people. Everybody came. So there were people there from every corner of the Jewish world. We get a full list in the passage, right? It tells us lots of the languages, lots of the places they were from. And the astonishing thing is that over 15 different languages the crowd hear their own language spoken. What is even more astonishing about those 15 languages is that it's Galileans that are speaking it, right? You might remember in 2015 there was an incident on an EasyJet plane where Kate Moss was arrested upon arrival and she was arrested for calling the flight attendant basic, right? That is like a pretty awful takedown, right? It's, she's, it, was, it was a bit more colorful than that. She called her a basic something. I'm not going to say it, right? But she called her basic, right? And basically... <laughs> That's what Galileans were, right? Galileans, they, they weren't known to be kind of cultured types. Basic was kind of taken to mean common, plain, uncultured, classless, like that kind of idea. And that's the reputation that Galileans had. They were uncultured people. One commentator writes that they had difficulty pronouncing gutturals. They had the habit of swallowing syllables when speaking. So they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial. Look down on from the people from the big city, the big smoke, right, as being provincial. They're from Larn, Balamoni, Oma, Dungan, and sorry, we love you. But that's from people from the big smoke. They look down on people from provincial places. And it was just the same then. It turns out that the most incredible thing of all the manifestations was language. You have to remember, right? That in this time, learning language was incredibly hard. There was no app for that. There was no shortcut to learning a language. It was incredibly difficult. And these were the sorts of people who'd never learned, to, to never learned these languages. Impossible. They never would. But then 
God did it. God did it. And the reason is that there is incredible power in language. Everyone will have had that experience of being in a foreign country at some point and not speaking the language, right? It's deadly, isn't it? Like that thing, you know, where you get there, you have one of two choices. If you're not very good with the language, the first is to do that wick kind of speak in English with an accent thing. You know, that awful thing that we do. Hi, could I have one of those, please? You know, you go into like your little French tone on the, on the uplifts, right? Or you kind of cobble together what you can remember from GCSE French, right? And say, but we were in a supermarket in France on a family holiday with Joy's family and we were ordering all sorts of different cheeses and Joy was like, get a cheddar. And I was like, Oh no, like I'm gnawing over my head, right? So I get to the front and I'm like, um, je voudrais uh, le fromage cheddar. <laughs> I don't know if the guy like just took pity on me. He was like, mm, oui, cheddar. And then he like, goes and gets it, right? Like he just, he just knew, okay? He saw my pitiful attempts at the French language and was like, no. And went and got it, right? But you got two choices. When you can't speak a language, it cripples you. It makes connection with people Almost impossible. But then I think about my sister, Esther. She's a linguist. She teaches French and German. She speaks them fluently. And over the years of her learning, I noticed something that happened to her while she learned. You see, she was always passionate about the language, right? From day one, going to family holidays to Euro camp in France, Esther was always really passionate about picking up little bits of French or German or Spanish from different people who were around the restaurants in the evenings, right? She loved to speak it. She loved learning it. I watched her fall in love with the sounds of it, where I could never understand what was going on, right? Language sounded beautiful to her. But then this thing happened afterwards, right? The love didn't stop with the language. Over time, I watched how she would become immersed in French and German culture, right? The food, the practices, the songs, their land, their landmarks, and so on and so on. And then I noticed how very often she would share in the ups and downs of these countries. So if like a World Cup was on, she would support France or whatever. She would share in their joys. And if there was a tragedy or an incident that happened, she would share in their suffering too. And I realized that what had started as a love for a language had become a love for the people themselves. Because language does that. And that's what's going on here. The Spirit is poured out, the power to witness. And the first step in that witness is the visible demonstration of their belonging to a community where every tongue, every tribe, every language is now invited to come and belong. As one commentator puts it, God speaks people fluently. Language is one of the most intimate forms of connection, isn't it? Like those of you that are married or in a relationship, you have your own language, you have your own lingo, your own terms for things, the way that you talk to each other. Language is intimate. This is the revolution of the intimate. This is the power of belonging. See, in lots of ways, we call the day of Pentecost the birth of the church. But the people of God had existed for like 4,000 years. What happened at Pentecost was when what was left of God's people became the spirit-filled, life-filled body of Christ. These weren't just the people of God anymore. This was the body of Christ. 
God was demonstrating at the day of Pentecost that every tribe and every tongue from every corner of the world could and would be met by a love that could not be tamed or controlled or planned like wind or fire and now unleashed it would propel the disciples forward into the world with one question. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us and into whose lives? Language demonstrate that there were no boundaries. There were no distinctions. That this was going to go to the far-flung corners of the globe. These were the languages of belonging, right? What was other all of a sudden became their own. These were languages that would propel the body of Christ out. Do you hear what the tongues mean today? Because they mean that the Acts 2 account is a call not for interpreters, but for translators. This is a call for people who will allow their lives to be translated not just once, but again and again and again as the Spirit propels us outwards. This is the power that propels, firstly. But secondly, this is the power that proclaims. It proclaims too. In some ways, it could be more appropriate to call the book of Acts the speeches of the apostles because the book of Acts is just full, crowned full of talks. There are 19 speeches in total throughout the book. In fact, about 20% of the total text of the book is made up of speeches given by Peter and Paul alone. And the one that we read in this section is one of the most famous. As Peter gives the speech, right, you'll have noticed when we read it, there were three pretty big kind of blocks of quotes, right? Uh, And they come from uh, Joel and from Psalm 16 and from Psalm 110, right? And they were in order to connect what had happened here today to what great figures of the past, like the prophet Joel or King David had said before. He's trying to seize the control of the narrative of these people. These were famous people of their cultural past and he's trying to lend their words to today's events. See, Peter was trying to explain what had happened because the crowd had just asked the most important question they'd ever asked. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What's going on here? One of the great debates of lockdown in most homes is what are we going to watch tonight, right? Over the last year, I'm assuming that's happened a lot in your home. Normally, we just like, you know, we argue a bit. I want to watch some rubbish movie. Joy ends up winning and we watch like Gogglebox just every night, right? But she's been winning, she's been winning the argument recently and subjecting me to I Can See Your Voice on BBC One. Has anybody else been watching I Can See Your Voice? Please tell me somebody has and we're not the only sad people in this congregation. We are, right? Okay. So what happens, and I can see your voice is, right? The whole point is that there's like players and there's people that come on and they have to guess if this person is a good singer or a bad singer, right? So they come out and they lip sync along to songs. And if, if they're singing along and they're a really good singer, it's actually their voice. But if they're a really bad singer, then it's, it's like a different version. Like it's, if they're lip syncing to it, it's not real. And the whole point is you guess as you go along, right? Who is the good singer with the aim that at the end you win by guessing who the good singer is, right? And eventually in each one, no matter if they pick them or they kind of exclude them, you get to hear their voice, right? They come out and the the kind of key line is, let's hear your voice, right? And they have to come out and they sing, right? The bad ones are amazing, right? Because it's like big stage lights, like back and track, and then they come out and it's like, "Ah!" and it's just truly terrible, right? And you have no idea what's about to come out of their mouths, but... 
Every so often, somebody will come out and you look at them and they're like, there's no way that's coming out of their mouth. And they get up and they open their mouth. And what comes out is the most astonishing vocal. And there's this kind of part of you every single time that goes, where did that come from? And it's this kind of the same thing with Peter here. Why do I say that? I said that before because before the Spirit had come, Peter really didn't have an awful lot to say. Before this point, there's not loads about Peter's kind of long talks or speeches or comments, right? He doesn't have loads to say. He doesn't say much. He'd not been much of a public speaker. And even more incredible than that, what you have to remember is the Peter who gets up and speaks this day is the same Peter who just a week or so before had denied Jesus three times. The one who gets to give one of the most incredible testimonies about Jesus is the one who denied him three times, just a short time before. It is the incredible evidence that the Holy Spirit is not a reward for good behavior. Holy Spirit doesn't come to you and empower you to do some things because of how well you've done some things in the past. The Holy Spirit is not held back from you or you don't disqualify yourself by your past. It's incredible that it's Peter. The Spirit has come now and he's the first to his feet. And he gives an absolutely incredible preach, right? If it was today, there'd be loads of people commenting with flame emojis, right? He quotes at length the words of the prophet Joel. This is what he says. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. There it is. There's those lack of distinctions, right? I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is he doing here? Well, he's trying to tell the crowd gathered that what had been spoken about all of those years before, the spirit coming and all that would follow was what was being fulfilled today. In other words... This was that. This is that. What the prophet said would happen is what you're seeing today. This is that. The Spirit was being poured out. And the fact that it was being poured is significant, right? Peter's trying to say that pouring is generous, right? The word for pouring is not an image for like a drizzle or a drop or a shower. It's like a torrent, right? So the Spirit coming is generous. Secondly, it's permanent. What's been poured out can't ever be gathered up again. You can't put it back in the ball. And pouring is for everyone. There's no distinction on who gets filled. There's no in-groups or out. There's no hierarchy or social structure. It's not conditional. Everyone is covered. And this was a world full of distinctions, classes, rules, boundaries, have-nots and outsiders. This is a new world order. And Peter says there's no going back. So everyone gets to play, right? But the funny thing is that isn't really what the speech is about. See, Peter says in verse 32, we are witnesses. 
And as you make your way through the book of Acts, you'll see that this phrase turns up again and again and again through the book of Acts, right? And he's not kind of saying it figuratively like we're all witnesses. He's saying we, as in we apostles, the small number of people, we are witnesses. You see, Pentecost is the moment that the power gets switched on, the power where believers become witnesses, the power that propels them out as witnesses is the power to proclaim. This is the power for outsiders to be in, the power where many languages become one church, the power where those who can't speak, speak, the power to perform miracles and healings, the power that transforms lives. It's the power that proclaims. But proclaims what? In verse 22, we have our answer. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus. Here's your answer. You want to know the heart of what's going on here? You want to know the point of all of this? Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus. Jesus. Like we said earlier on, Peter's trying to seize control of the narrative of the people of Israel. He tries to lend the, world, the words of great figures from the past, but he doesn't stop there. He wants to point them squarely at Jesus. And so he gives the most astonishing testimony, right? We could pick it apart today if we had time. It's incredible, right? The rest of the speech really is that testimony, which is incredible, as I said, for a man who denied Jesus just a short time before. He gives an absolutely complete testimony about Jesus just a short time later. It's in full color. Verse 22, he's talking about Jesus' life and his ministry, who he was. Verse 23, he's talking about Jesus' death. Verses 24 to 32, he uses David's words from the Psalms. He talks about Jesus' resurrection and the life that is found in his life. Verses 33 to 36, again using David's words, he tells of how one day Jesus will be lifted up to where he belongs. Verses 37 to 39, he talks about his salvation. Verses 40 to 41, he talks about Jesus' new community. It's an astonishing testimony. If we were sitting down today to talk about what testimony entails and what's in there, like there it is in just a few short verses. Why though? In many ways, the question is why? After all that had gone on, after pointing people from the words of the prophets and and from great figures of the past and saying this is that, why does he get to Jesus? Why? After all, he's talking in Israel, talking about Israel, for Israel. These are insiders, after all. These are people who have traveled from miles away to show up to a religious feast, right? Normally, we think if you've done that, you're pretty in, right? You don't need somebody to tell you about Jesus if you've traveled for miles around to show up to a religious feast. But here's the thing. All religious faith believes it has God in its sights, doesn't it? It genuinely believes it. It knows and seeks after. It tirelessly devotes time and energy and resources. But this message was pointing to a massive shift that their faith would need to be found not in traditions and religion and practices that had been followed for thousands of years. Their faith would need to be found in Jesus. It could only be found in Jesus, could only be met in him. And so does ours. Here's the question today. What or who does my life witness to? 
What or who does your life witness to? The power of Pentecost comes to proclaim, but what does my life proclaim? Who does my life proclaim? Peter points towards the witness of the prophets of old, right? People like Joel and David. And Peter points to the witness of his own life. He's saying, we were really there. This stuff, we really saw it. It really happened. The things we're talking about, the things you've heard about Jesus, we were there. We saw, we are witnesses. And here's what he's saying. To be witnesses means that we don't have the freedom to preach the Jesus that we want. Pentecost is the power to proclaim, but it's not the power to proclaim the Jesus that we want, the Jesus that makes it easier for us, the Jesus that makes it comfortable for us. The contents of our witness need to be the contents of their witness. See, this is a challenge, right? We don't get to speak of the Jesus that suits us. We don't get to speak of the one that wants what I want, the one who votes how I vote, the one who never offends, the one who agrees with me on everything, the one who's passionate about everything that I'm passionate about and hates everyone I hate, the one who never challenges me, surprises me, or scares me. We don't get to amputate the gospel, is what he's saying. We don't get to just preach the Jesus that suits us when it suits us. Peter's saying we don't get to talk about the cross without the resurrection. We don't get to talk about the New Testament without the old. We don't get to talk about spirit without truth and faith without repentance. Their faith challenges our faith to proclaim what they proclaimed. And that's a challenge, right? In the world in which we live. In the conversations that surround us all the time, in the culture which increasingly seems to want to cut Christian faith out of the major narratives, that's a challenge, right? To preach the Jesus that they preached. To believe in what they believed. Not just to believe in what suits us when it suits us. But secondly, it's not just a challenge because of the challenge to proclaim what they believed. It's the challenge to proclaim how they proclaimed. I mean, just look at their faith. Look at what they did. Look at how boldly they proclaimed it. As we said last week, we were in Acts 3. We were talking about the fact that before the religious authorities, um, Peter, they're sent away from there at the end. They're saying, look, we're going to let you go, right? There's going to be no problem provided you don't say anything else. And as they're leaving, they're saying, well, that option is off the table for me now in other words you're going to see me again saying nothing isn't an option anymore it's not just what they said it's how they said it Pentecost is about the power that propels in this case maybe on first glance we think it's about wind and we think it's about fire and and all of that stuff that's very often the images we have at Pentecost but maybe it was language that was the most significant the most powerful the most long lasting the language that propelled a movement outwards that let every tribe and every tongue know that the gospel was for them that Jesus love was for them that this was a community of belonging that transcended every tribe, every distinction, every tongue. And secondly, this was the power that proclaims, that proclaims Jesus. 
that constrains us to preach the real Jesus, the true Jesus, not just the one that suits us when things are hard and when we know it might come into conflict with other people's opinions. That's what's going on at Pentecost.